Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. It's a great pleasure to be here. My name is uh, Luigi Tomba, for those of you who don't know me. I'm the director of the China Studies Centre here at the University of Sydney, uh, which is one of the um, several multidisciplinary initiatives of this uh, university, one that um, has to do in particular with China and the work, uh, uh, the very significant work that is done by this university on China. Uh, So my duty is simply to welcome all of you on behalf of the centre and on behalf of Sydney Ideas and the Department of Government and International Relations who are co-organising tonight's event. Um, Before we start, it is important to remember that the land on which uh, uh, this university is built has a tradition as a place of learning and that goes back even before the starting of this university, the founding of this university and therefore I would like to acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Ora Nation uh, on whose land we meet today and pay my respect and on your behalf your respects to their elders past and present. That's very important. It's important in all, in all of our activities, especially the ones we hold here at the university. So tonight's event is very topical and clearly it attracted a quite significant interest despite the fact that the weather was not very collaborative. Um, the, uh, the prospect for peace in the Korean Peninsula. Uh, and when we started to organize, uh, to organize this event, uh, the summit between the President of the US and the Chairman of the DPRK was still hanging in the balance. Um, could have happened or not have happened, but we thought it would be important to put the situation in the Korean Peninsula in perspective, even if this summit had not materialized, to give it a bit of a breathing space in the discussion. Um, in a discussion that is otherwise dominated by very urgent uh, concerns. Uh, but the summit, in the end, did happen, and I'm as curious as you are to hear from the panels of experts tonight what the initial assessment is about this, uh, the, this developing situation and what we should expect from the future. So my gratitude and welcome also to the member of tonight's panel and uh, to host the panel and uh, to uh, introduce the panel as well. Let me introduce you to James Riley, who is an associate uh, professor in the Department of Government and International Relations here at Sydney, and has a much greater expertise, of course, uh, about the the political complexities of the region. James' most uh, recent book is called Strong Societies, Mars State. We agreed on short introductions. It it could be a much longer introduction, but his most recent book is uh, uh, 2012, Strong Societies, Smart State, The Rise of Public Opinion in China, in China's Japan Policy. And it was published by Columbia University in 2012, as I said. And he's currently working on Chinese statecraft. So, Jamie, I'll I'll let you introduce the format of the panel. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much, Luigi. Let me please uh, take a moment first to add my welcome to all of you and appreciation for tearing yourself away from the World Cup. I know for me it was very difficult, but uh, and, and through this uh, torrential weather here in Sydney to join us, for I, I expect to be an extremely stimulating, uh, exciting, and informative panel. We certainly have a, a, 
a wealth of expertise here on the platform, and so I don't want to stand in the way of, of their comments, other than to briefly introduce them here uh, right now. So uh, I think I'll, what I'll do is I'll introduce all three speakers and ask each one of them. They'll speak for about five to ten minutes or so. Uh, they've promised uh, to, to all, we've all agreed to stay away from PowerPoint, which uh, it will hopefully lend to a more informal kind of interaction, which is what we're looking forward to. So they'll each speak for a little bit. I maybe ask a question or two to get the ball rolling, and then we'll open it up to all of you, and I'll facilitate a conversation, which we'll expect you to be active participants. You've come here through, through very difficult weather, and uh, we really appreciate that, and we want you to be part of the conversation. For what I certainly believe, and I think our panelists, and I assume you do as well, what is an extremely timely event. We planned this a long time ago, President Trump didn't quite consult us on the timing of the summit, but it worked out very well for our purposes. And we're extremely excited to, to speak about both what's happened in the past uh, few weeks and months, as well as what might be going on in the near future. Uh, so first, uh, briefly, let me just uh, tell you who's uh, sitting here and who's gonna be speaking with us today. My uh, colleague and friend, Justin Hastings, is a, a associate professor in the Department of Government and International Relations. Uh, and Justin, uh, his expertise has been certainly varied and rich. His first book was uh, No Man's Land, Globalization, Territory, and Clandestine Groups in Southeast Asia. And since then, Dustin's studies of the dark arts have spread to North Korea. Most recently, a really important and influential book that I would recommend to all of you. Um, a Most Enterprising Country, North Korea and the Global Economy is out just very recently and I think is a fascinating look. So in addition to a number of articles and expertise, Justin really provides uh, an exciting and innovative and, and really unique look inside of North Korea as well as its uh, external economic relations. Uh, another colleague of mine, David Smith, uh, is also in the Department of Government as well as in the U.S. Study Center here at the University of Sydney. Uh, David's expertise is really on U.S. politics and his, his first book, uh, published just a, a few years ago with Cambridge, is Religious Persecution and Political Order in the United States. And he's extremely active uh, on the, the media as well as in a lot of academic publications. And so we're really glad that he's here to speak with us about US politics, and finally, someone that I've just had the honor to, to meet recently, but have read his work and really taught it to students for a long time, is Richard McGregor, who's a senior fellow here at the Lowy Institute. Uh, Richard has been a reporter and a journalist in China and in Asia for a number of years, primarily with the Financial Times, as well as with the Australian. Many of you will be familiar with his very influential book on the party the secret world of Chinese communist rulers, but his most recent book uh, that he just completed after a number of years working in Washington uh, is Asia's Reckoning, China, Japan, and the fate of US power in the Pacific century. We're very fortunate that Richard has joined us here in Sydney to work at the Lowy Institute, and we look forward to many more opportunities to, to working with him here at this university. So I think what I'll do is I'll turn it over first to Justin, and then to Richard, and then, and then finally to David to speak. And you're welcome to speak where you are or down here. Thank you very much. Please, uh, Justin. Okay, so, um, so I, I, I'm going to talk about sort of two things having to do with the origins and implications of this North Korea's sort of diplomatic offensive. Um, first, why is North Korea talking now? Uh, and sort of what will come of the summit, if anything? Sort of what does the future hold? Um, I don't pretend to know what's going on inside Kim Jong-un's head. If I did, I wouldn't be sitting here. I'd be sitting on the French Riviera with millions of dollars. Um, but I, I think sort of, I'll address the first first and then the, the second question second. So, I think North Korea is talking now for two seemingly contradictory reasons. 
The first is it actually needs to talk now. Right? So um, if you think about how North Korea's economy has developed, which is what I've been obsessed with for the past couple of years, um, basically we, we sort of know that sort of there are all these informal markets that have appeared in North Korea, but I think sort of less appreciated is that nearly everything in North Korea has become marketized. Right? I mean, it's, in some ways, it's a more capitalist country than many capitalist countries. And uh, what this has meant in practice is that many of the elites who um, sort of support Kim Jong-un also make a lot of money, partly through their support, partly through the positions they have within the party um, or, in, or in the state or in the military. Um, and sort of this money that they generate, um, some of it goes to them, some of it goes to Kim Jong-un. Um, and in, in some sense, this is good for him. Right? This allows him to resist sanctions. He has a revenue stream that exists outside of sanction entities and sanctioned industries, uh, and it makes, so it makes North Korea resistant to sanctions. Right? At the same time, it's a weakness for him, because while he's not, he's not challenged by these elites, he is constrained by them, right? and he can't do sort of infinitely many things um, and sort of ignore what, what these elites and their, their desire to make money um, want. Uh, it's also made North Korea very dependent on trade, so a lot of this entrepreneurship that's happening in North Korea is actually trade, and most of this trade goes through China. Right? Uh, and so what it means is that North Korea, in some sense, has become more susceptible to Chinese pressure than it has been in the past. Uh, and sort of what changed in the past two years is that the, from you know, what my sources tell me, the Chinese crackdown last year uh, was really bad. <laughs> like, it was, it was the worst Chinese crackdown that the China's done um, in, in sort of years. Uh, and, you know, it resulted in a lot of negative things for North Korea. Um, the markets that North Korea relied on um, partially collapsed. Um, smuggling was no longer divided between good and bad smuggling, which China had traditionally made a division. Now there's just bad smuggling. Uh, and so they cracked down on that. China replaced a lot of the networks of officials in the border areas who had, who had supported uh, sort of North Korean trade before. And they, they sort of strongly discouraged Chinese companies from being in North Korea for at least a period of time. Uh, and this sort of got really bad, especially in the second half of last year and the, the first part of this year. Right? And, and there's all indications are that North Korea actually felt this. Right? Um, and you can see sort of the logic where if, if the sanctions are really bad and they're actually affecting North Korea, the elites themselves are now losing money. And I think the sanctions, in some ways, um, were especially interesting because for the first time in the past couple of years, sanctions spread to industries in North Korea that were no longer dominated by the military. Right? So things like seafood and textiles, which are things that regular people can do, not just the military. Right? And so what that means is in some sense you're getting other elites who had been supportive of Kim Jong-un, who were not in the military, who are now being pressured by the sanctions as well. Uh, and that leads to pressure on Kim Jong-un to do something to sort of get rid of these sanctions, or at least um, downplay the Chinese enforcement of sanctions. Right? As you can see why, in some sense, they would now want to talk. Right? They, they need to sort of get at least, the, at least some kind of sanctions relief. At the same time, I think North Korea now thinks it's a good, it's a good time to talk. They're now in their strongest position they've been in, for pretty much ever when it comes to the nuclear weapons program. They finished it, right? Um, if you think about sort of what North Korea needs, it needs a missile that can hit the US, and it needs a nuclear weapon that's small enough to be mounted on that missile, right? And what we see with sort of North Korea's development, and one of the things I've done as a side project is track North Korea's research networks uh, and sort of hydrogen bomb technology, and one thing we can see is that um, as of September, they seem to have built a bomb that is small enough but powerful enough to be, to be mounted on a missile. Right? And so in that sense, they've, they've actually gotten what they wanted, uh, and, which is a deliverable deterrent against the U.S. Uh, and so in some sense, this is, a good, this is a good time for them to talk, even if talks fall apart. Um, they don't need any more costly provocations like missile tests or um, weapons tests to, to get what they want. Right? They're there. Right? Okay, so what does that mean in terms of what's going to happen after the summit? Um, I, I think sort of one thing is... My guess is that North Korea has not made a strategic decision to give up their nuclear weapons. 
right? So it's not like they're sort of going in saying, this is what we want. Um, this is why the denuclearization statement in the, in the summit statement was worded the way it was. Um, but the summit does give them some breathing room. So if you think about China's perspective, they want any excuse to not enforce sanctions, right? And sort of North Korea being willing to talk to the U.S. and the U.S. being willing to talk to North Korea is a great reason to do that. Um, and sort of one of the things you've seen is that smuggling picked, up, picked back up again starting about March, right? Because, you know, now China is sort of lessening their, their pressure on North Korea. Uh, and so in some sense, as long as North Korea keeps talking and as long as North Korea doesn't have any more provocations, it has some breathing room. Um, relative to sort of what it had before. And so that breathing room comes in the form of lack of sanctions enforcement by China. And if, if South Korea reopens Kaesong, it results, it comes from uh, money from Kaesong as well. Um, so, I, so where do we go from there, um, as long as we keep talking? Um, I, I think sort of in some ways, it's an imperfect solution for North Korea. A lack of sanctions enforcement doesn't mean no sanctions. It, it puts a limit on how much you can invest in North Korea if um, the sanctions are formally still in place, even if China's not enforcing them. Um, it also, in some sense, means that um, you know, North Korea is still not sure if he can trust the U.S. security guarantees. And look, as an IR person, any country would be a fool to trust any other country's security guarantees. So it's not really a U.S.-North Korea-specific problem. Um, so the question is, what do we do? What, what is a potential solution? And I think it might come in, in sort of two forms, right? First, um, the U.S. has long insisted, and this is not a Trump policy. This is a, a sort of a U.S. government policy for, for decades um, on complete, verifiable, in, in irreversible disarmament. Uh, one thing the U.S. could do is, is sort of clarify its understanding of what that actually means. What does complete mean? What does verifiable mean? What does irreversible mean? Um, what does disarmament mean, right? And if, and if the U.S. clarifies those, we might get to some sort of modus operandi that, that would sort of be, be suitable to North Korea. I think the second is, is the more fundamental issue. North Korea's primary, primary goal, ultimately, is regime survival. And so it needs to make a strategic decision at some point the regime survival is better guaranteed by economic development than by nuclear weapons. Uh, you know, how it make that decision? I think the, the, the key might lie in the fact that its economy is now, in some sense, dependent on, on trade. And so in that sense, it needs to do this. But um, that's ultimately a decision only North Korea can make. Um, thanks very much. I'm going to talk a little bit about the history of Chinese-North uh, Korean relations and Hopefully, we get to the point where we can sort of how it informs what's happening today. Now, outside of esteemed institutions like Sydney University, uh, I think you'd be surprised how many people think that the North Koreans and Chinese are best friends uh, in the old uh, uh, propaganda saw as close as lips and teeth. Now, this hasn't been the case for a long time, uh, I would say maybe, maybe for decades. Now, even going back to Kim Il-sung, who was close to the Chinese, Kim Il-sung would play the Chinese and the Soviets off against each other uh, to his advantage. Um, so there was never the sort of lock there with China and the dependency on China. Now that changed, obviously, there's a number of turning points. Uh, 1992, when China recognized South Korea for the first time, uh, that was a jolt to the North Korean system. Uh, the Chinese handled that very well, by the way. They took Kim Il-sung on a sort of fully-fledged tour of China and honoured him as a great revolutionary leader and the like, so they managed to get through it quite well. But nonetheless, I think they're stuck inside the North Korean system as a betrayal and certainly something that was used in internal North Korean politics as a betrayal against uh, uh, North Korea. Now, the Chinese have always uh, looked on North Korea, I think, well, particularly since reform and modernisation started from 1979-80, have always looked on North Korea with a bit of despair. 
they have always wanted or urged North Korea to go down the Chinese path uh, of modernization. Now, uh, as James says, perhaps the North Korean economy is thoroughly marketized in its own odd way these days, but it's never been marketized in a way that China has been and in a way which makes the country rich. Um, I can remember when I went back to live in Shanghai in 2000 and about a year or so later, by this time Kim Jong-il was in power, uh, half the city closed down because the Chinese had brought Kim Jong-il into uh, Shanghai to give him a personal tour of the General Motors GM joint venture car plant so he could see Chinese workers making Buicks. And this was their way of saying, look, you can be like us, you can have be an authoritarian leader, and you can develop your economy at the same time. Um, obviously, uh, uh, Kim Jong-il did not take that message to heart. He had actually been to Shenzhen previously as well, the China's first economic zone, and I think he left uh, calling the Chinese capitalist revisionists or something like that. Um, I guess the second time a real light went off in my head about how strained the North Korean-Chinese relationship was, was in about 2005 and 2006. This was the period when the six-party talks to try and bring, you know, get a grip on the North Korean nuclear program, that was when they were underway. And uh, the, the, China, the North Koreans conducted a missile test at one stage. The Chinese got angry, as they always do. Uh, uh, an envoy from North Korea came and to, uh, to have a meeting with Hu Jintao. Now, the official propaganda at that time was still that North Korea and China were as, as close as lips and teeth. But I'll never forget watching the official state TV that night and seeing the North Korean envoy sort of gripping a piece of paper, hand shaking as he read a message to Hu Jintao, who sat there stiffly uh, in reply. You know, th this was not an exchange between two friendly countries. Um, now, the six-party talks, uh, they were revived, um, really, I guess, after the first nuclear test. Uh, you wouldn't know from listening, watching Fox News, Fox News but that, that actually ha happened under Bush, not Obama. Um, this has all been going on for a long time. Um, uh, the Bush administration, in fact, with the urging and the help of the Chinese, almost managed to strike a deal at that time, which is very familiar if you read what came out of Singapore the other day. You know, substantial agreement on the dismantling of nuclear facilities, complete declaration of facilities, etc., etc. Uh, and as I said, the Chinese were instrumental in driving those talks and trying to push North Korea to the table. Now, that fell apart. Uh, as all the other deals before and since have. Uh, there are many you know, reasons, suggestions why. One of, them, one of them, and one which is popular in Washington, is that Kim Jong-il got sick. He didn't die to 2011, but certainly American officials thought that once he got sick, uh, all his internal energy, all his political energy was focused on getting um, his son uh, to succeed him. Uh, which, of course, meant forgetting all about giving up nukes or even discussing it. So fast forward to where we are now. We have uh, Kim Jong-un in power. Uh, he's gradually consolidated power, as, uh, as the saying goes. Um, as far as we can tell, he's done this in a number of ways. Uh, one of this was by uh, you know, assassinating um, uh, his uncle and his entire family. That usually gets people's attention. Uh, he's also done it, I think, by ratcheting, it up, ratcheting up his nuclear program. That's very important uh, in a number of levels. 
um, you know, he's t you know, he's taken it right to the brink of getting an ICBM, as James said, which can, you know, maybe drop a nuke on Los Angeles. Now, in doing this, he shows resolve, toughness, independence. He set himself up well for negotiations. But I think there's always an internal reason as well. And I think the most important, uh, you know, group of the elite in North Korea are the scientists the rocket scientists and the nuclear scientists. And if Kim Jong-un was to win their support and win their backing, I don't think he could have done anything else except to abort their program to the edge at which he's done it now. And I think that's another often overlooked point, and often overlooked, of course, because it's difficult to know exactly what's happened. Uh, now, back to China. None of this, of course, Kim Jong-un's behavior has not made China happy. Uh, they don't want instability on their borders. Uh, they don't respect Kim Jong-un. I think the uh, Chinese traditionally are going to have a respect for a leader with experience and age. This is some 34-year-old guy who's barely ever left the country. I'm not sure whether we ever confirmed whether he went to Swiss finishing school or not, but anyway, he's not a well-traveled and experienced uh, statesman. Um, now, as we all know, it's a cliche, but it's true. China has always weighed up its interests. It's, it's, it can either have uh, it can have a nuclear North Korea on its border, or on the other hand, if North Korea was to be uh, deprived of its nukes, it could have an unstable North Korea on its border, and it's always gone for the latter. Now, that doesn't mean that Kim has not been jiving the Chinese crazy. Uh, let me read you some excerpts from a speech given last year by a very distinguished uh, Chinese Cold War historian, Mr. Shen, Professor Shen Jiahua. Uh, admittedly, he's at the liberal end of the spectrum in China. Um, here's a few of things of what he said. He said, if we look at North Korea and South Korea, who is a friend of China and who is an enemy? Outwardly, China and North Korea are allies. Uh, but I believe that after decades of contention and shifts in the international landscape, there's been a fundamental transformation. North Korea is China's latent enemy, and South Korea could be China's friend. Um, the root cause, he says, was the nuclear program. China's, North Korea has been doing this for the sake of its fundamental interests, so putting it objectively, the fundamental interests of China and North Korea are at odds. We must see clearly that China and North Korea are no longer brothers in arms, and in the short term, there's no possibility of an improvement in the relationship. Now, his complaint was, as a number of other Chinese scholars and officials has been, that every time that the North, North Koreans would uh, test a missile or um, have an, a, a nuclear a bomb test, then this would give the Americans and the Japanese and the South Koreans an excuse to ramp up their presence, in the, presence on the peninsula and therefore put China on the back foot. Now, I think he was Professor Shem was basically correct in describing uh, Chinese sentiment. I think since then, uh, a few things have changed. First of all, change in South Korea has been very important. Uh, you know, Donald Trump wants to make it all about him all the time, you know, the Nobel Prize, et cetera, et cetera. But this is also a fundamentally intra-Korean dynamic. And at the moment in Korea, you have a new, relatively new president, President Moon Jae-in, Jae who is family from the North. Uh, he spent his whole life work, think, working at ways to bring North Korea and South Korea closer together. Um, uh, he's, his party is even more radical, if you, I can use that word on that point. 
So he's more than willing to reach out in, any, in, in a manner of different ways to get some sign of, kind of detente. Um, Trump, uh, he is important. Now, he cares as much about the US alliance as the hardliners in President Moon's party do. In other words, not very much. He's not emotionally invested in the alliance. Uh, he thinks it costs uh, the US money. He basically views South Korea in the same prism that he looks at Japan as an ally which has been freeloading on the US on security and screwing them on trade. Uh, and he hasn't changed uh, budge an inch on that issue. But I would say that the Trump's um, you know, craziness, his willingness to em embrace Kim in the way that he did in Singapore is potentially important in one respect if he's able to follow through on the initiative or if the deep state in the US can push him uh, to follow through. And that is in this respect. China has always wanted the US and North Korea to talk directly, uh, to dial down tensions. But they don't want them to get too friendly. It's much the same as the US with Japan and China. They want Japan and China to get on, but the US doesn't want Japan and China to get on too well. The same goes with China uh, and the uh, US and North Korea. But I think North Korea does not want to be dependent on China. As I said, very suspicious of China. So North Korea has a lot of incentive to pull the US in and keep it in uh, as a balancer against China. Now, I'm not saying that the US troops in South Korea can end up protecting North Korea, but you know, some people don't talk like that. You know, I'm not saying also that the North Korean bomb can become the Korean bomb if the two countries were ever uh, unified, but all that's possible. So I think it really means, and I probably should stop actually, I've got to, uh, you know, there's a lot to play for, and it's not simply that North Korea is going to fall into China's lap or hands and become a client stake, because I think the one thing that Kim Jong-un is doing, he's talking to everybody, and of those countries, the most important is the US, and so there's a lot of uh, more low-hanging fruit, I think, for those two countries to pluck to strengthen their relationship. Thank you. Uh, thanks very much, and uh, thanks very much to Jamie and the China Studies Centre for having me tonight. As the US Studies Centre representative, I'll talk a bit about the American domestic politics of this, which are very weird. And they're not just for the obvious reason, Captain Weird. Um, <laughs> they're weird for a number of reasons, one of which is the general climate of public opinion. Given that you know, Kim Jong-un threatened the United States with nuclear weapons, it's something that North Korea has been doing or has wanted to do for a very long time, the atmosphere in the United States when it comes to North Korean threats is actually incredibly relaxed. It is simply not very real to most Americans. Given that the major cultural representation of North Korea and its nuclear abilities in the United States was a movie from 2004 called Team America World Police in which Kim Jong-il was depicted as this kind of demented puppet. That's the, that's the view that, that people have. And even last year when Trump and, and Kim were trading what seemed to be these fairly terrifying insults back and forth, there was always this complete air of unreality 
Okay, so to older Americans, this was nothing like the Soviet threat, which actually was very real. There's no one doing duck and cover routines in American schools. Nor was it like the post 9-11 uh, sort of threat emanating vaguely from the Middle East. Might be Al-Qaeda, might be Saddam, might be ISIS. It, it didn't feel as real as that either. All of this to say is that what the American people mainly saw were low-stakes theatrics, right? Despite the very, very real stakes involved, this was not a salient foreign policy issue for most Americans. Foreign policy is actually rarely salient for most Americans, especially during elections, unless they have been at war um, for a while. And this is one of the reasons why the president in the American system actually has so much leeway on foreign policy, particularly when it comes to military deployment, because foreign policy is usually not very salient. All of which is a way of saying that Trump has quite a free hand when it comes to North Korea. He doesn't face many constraints from public opinion. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that there's a, there is a definite appetite uh, in the United States for Trump's worldview, and this was probably his best opportunity to actually show it and get credit for it. And so Trump's view is, as, as has been mentioned, he basically views alliances as useless. He's never seen the value of them. Even before the end of the Cold War, Trump's first ever foreign policy foray was in 1987 when he took out full-page newspaper ads in the New York Times and the Washington Post, so speaking to an elite audience, saying, there's nothing wrong with our foreign policy that a little backbone won't cure. He didn't mention the Soviet Union, didn't mention any threat to the United States. What he was complaining about were allies. He was complaining about Japan. He was complaining about Germany. He was complaining about Saudi Arabia. Trump had this sort of historical hostility to basically every Asian country. I think it's only recently that he started to make meaningful distinctions between them. And um, especially you know, Japan, it, he did not like the incursions of the Japanese into the American real estate market, including the, the incursions that actually uh, bailed him out. I think that in many ways, uh, China for him has taken over the sort of uh, Asian bogeyman role. He really hates um, China on the issue of trade, although he does have this admiration for strong leaders, uh, such, as she and such as Kim Jong-un. This, I mean, I always think nothing can take me by surprise with Trump, but the praise that he has heaped uh, on Kim Jong-un has been pretty extraordinary. But anyway, there is, a, there is a bit of an appetite in the US for this vision of we won't have allies, we'll basically just have deals. And there's no such thing as a good or bad country anymore, there's just good and bad deals. And I think fundamentally this has been in the air since the end of the Cold War. Up until the end of the Cold War, American nationalism and American globalism were two sides of the same coin. They weren't something uh, that were in opposition. If you had asked Americans during the Cold War, you know, what do you get out of this system of alliances, out of this system of free trade that you guarantee? What do you get out of this? The answer would have been simple. It would have been freedom. Americans saw these guarantees that they made to other countries as crucial for their own Freedom. They believed that if they withdrew these guarantees, sooner or later they'd be fighting the communists on their own doorstep. This just 
it is just no longer the same environment for most Americans. And, I mean, Trump was, he was not the first, but he was the first to really explicitly sort of formulate this idea of essentially nationalism versus globalism, that they are not two sides of the same coin anymore, they are two things that are opposed. And as I say, there is actually plenty of appetite in the US for this. So when Trump says, you know, we will stop doing military exercises with South Korea in exchange for essentially nothing, um, you know, there's no outcry about this. What there, there are there are hawks in the United States. There are, you know, what's sometimes referred to as the foreign policy establishment in the United States. They're not happy about it, although no one really knows whether this is going to happen or not. But this is another area where Trump actually has a fairly free hand. Uh, most Americans are not going to lose any sleep if the United States stops doing joint exercises with South Korea. And this brings us to the sort of third point, which is Trump's own personal interests don't necessarily align with what are traditionally American security interests. So there is definite potential for Trump and Kim Jong-un to find common ground where the United States and North Korea would not be able to find common ground, uh, as paradoxical as that might sound. There was a great article in The Baffler recently saying, people say that Trump's a bad negotiator, but actually he's a great negotiator. He always gets what he wants. Massive, excessive amounts of praise heaped on him by foreign leaders. He gets red carpet receptions. He gets, uh, you know, he gets gold, essentially. He gets shown gold wherever he goes. I think one of the things that not just North Korea, but also South Korea, China, basically every country in the Persian Gulf figured out very quickly um, about Trump was that what he is looking for personally on the international stage is a level of esteem that he has never been given back home, even after becoming the President of the United States. This psychological factor can't be underestimated in negotiations at all, because I believe that one of the things that we've just seen is Trump really enjoying himself on the international stage, there with Kim Jong-un, who appears to treat him as, as an equal, who appears to be more willing to negotiate with him than members of his own Congress. Uh, you know, he's going out and he's making a deal. It doesn't matter that it's a completely insubstantial deal. It doesn't matter that it's weak and it, it's vague what he's, you know, he, he's got a deal out of this and he really likes doing it. I think that this is actually going to set a template for Trump foreign policy to come. We could see years of these uh, very sort of dramatically performed, not very substantial deals with other countries. Now, what a lot of American foreign policy analysts will be hoping for is that once that show, uh, you know, is over then the real work can begin. You know, then the uh, lower level officials from various countries can get together and actually hammer out arrangements the same way that they've always done. Uh, you know, if they can sort of give Trump the, the patina of, uh, of triumph. Now, this would be a, a very weird thing to see in foreign policy, but these are very weird times. Thanks. pleasure of sitting where I sit right now is I have the opportunity to ask some questions before I turn it over to all of you. So what I want to do is sort of uh, push a little bit all three of our speakers uh, in different ways and, and raise some issues that I think came out of there. What do you think might be possible under the current 
formal legal sanctions regime, assuming that the UN imposed sanctions remain in place, what could happen in the near future in terms of economic ties? Well, I, I think that, um, so I mean, China, China has been encouraging investment and trade with North Korea for decades, right? Um, and I think the main limiting factor on sort of how, how much you could see that blossom in North Korea was not whatever sanctions there were or even Chinese government encouragement, it was North Korea itself, right? Um, I think many people don't realize North Korea actually has an investment law and a joint venture law. They encourage investment, they have for decades now. Um, sort of a weird for, you know, the Stalinist country, but there you go. Um, but, you know, I mean, it's, it's a terrible investment environment, <laughs> right? I mean, you go there, you um, say you sort of, you, you build a mine, they expropriate your mine. You sort of want to build a factory, there's no electricity. Um, you want to sort of have workers, the workers don't have any food, right? And, you know, and so in some sense, investing in North Korea is a really bad idea, even if North Korea wants you to go and even if you want to go, right? Um, and, you know, that's needless to say the fact there's no credible dispute resolution mechanism in North Korea, right? The, the actual investment law says if you have a dispute with your counterparty in North Korea, you go to the counterparty and they resolve the dispute for you. Right? Um, and, you know, which leads to a problem, right? And, and I think sort of we say, well, what will happen, say, if sanctions stay in place and China and North Korea reconcile in some way? I mean, I'm sure you'll see sort of Chinese companies going back to North Korea. Um, you'll probably see a continuation of what they were doing before, which is building infrastructure that would help them. Uh, and, you know, you see sort of some exports. I mean, I'm not sure how much the formal sanctions actually matter for China. A lot of it was being ignored anyway. Um, and a lot of the trade that goes on is actually smuggled anyway. Um, so, so in that sense, you know, if... If there's more reconciliation, you see just more smuggling. Um, but to a certain extent, until North Korea itself changes its own institutions, Chinese companies themselves will be unwilling to invest that much in the country, right? Um, they're limited to trade, they're limited to very low-value low foreign FDI, um, and sort of that's, that's, really a, that's really a North Korea issue, not a China issue. Thanks. And, and then for, for Richard, I was curious to hear, maybe hear a few more words about your thoughts on China's approach to uh, North Korea's uh, engagement or potential rapprochement, both with South Korea and with Washington. And you wrote and, and you spoke a little bit about uh, China being sort of anxious about U.S. Um, influence or engagement with North Korea. I, I happen to be a little skeptical of that. I think we're a long way from that being a primary concern. We see in the news just the last day or so, that it looks like a third trip by Kim Jong-un to Beijing. So after years of being frozen out of visiting China, being refused the opportunity to visit China as both his father and his grandfather did, uh, he had to wait for years to be able to do so. Now he's gone three times in, I think, a little over a month. Uh, I, I played for my students the video that, that on CCTV at the first visit, 11, 13 minutes, fascinating of the level of sort of closeness and warmth which is portrayed by the Chinese television. I highly recommend it to any of you. If you want to see sort of two communist friends uh, making up uh, in front of uh, a billion people or so, that's what it was. Uh, so I, it seems that, in fact, China's been a pretty strong supporter of the engagement. He flew to Singapore on a Chinese plane. He's come to Beijing before or after any of these major engagements. China said nothing but positive words about the engagement both with South Korea and with the U.S. It seems that China's really encouraging and supporting and in many ways backing this diplomatic engagement. So I'm curious if you could say a little more words about sort of China's influence or response to this. Well, I mean, that's one way of looking at it, but you can turn that on its head. I mean, that the, the flurry of trips after nothing, for years, nothing, and I think the nothing uh, gives you the sort of sense of what they, what, you know, Kim has really, how Kim has really played them. The fact that there's been a flurry of trips might, doesn't sort of exhibit Beijing's warmth. Uh, it exhibits their concern, their worry, 
the, their desire to quickly get this right, get, get North Korea back in the Chinese camp. Uh, Kim is talking to everybody, um, and, he, and he was, I think, there today, or there were reports when I was coming out this year, the third trip. Um, but, um, I mean, I think, and I think a, a, a part of that, I mean, the Chinese have been talking again to Kim about their economic model, because, I, I mean, I, I might uh, disagree with my colleague. I think, in fact, that the, a lot of money, Chinese money would pour in there, and that would be competing with South Korean money, with Japanese money, and also with a bit of US money, less so. But I, I think that the, if, you know, the whole history of North Korea and the Korean Peninsula is not to be dominated by foreign powers anymore. Uh, and if you're, if you're going to sort of bring that off, then you're not going to be too much, have uh, your foot too much in the one camp, which is China. Uh, I mean, there's lots of good reasons for China to invest in North Korea, not least because the three provinces aligned with North Korea or bordering with North Korea are amongst the sort of most depressed in the Chinese economy in recent times have actually had a recession, not just an Asian-style growth recession. So I, I think the flurry of trips just exhibits the you know, Chinese concern that they play themselves right back into the game at the top, uh, that they head off any uh, you know, depth of rapprochement with the US, uh, that they make sure that North Korea comes to them first, uh, politically, diplomatically, economically, uh, I'm not saying the U.S. is taking over, but the U.S. Um, uh, has a potentially massive role to play in that respect as a balancer. And I think the U.S., frankly, has a lot of soft power still of the kind that China doesn't have for other countries. Um, there's little Chinese soft power in, uh, in, uh, in South Korea. And I suspect if you wanted North Koreans, if, they were, you know, if we could find out what they actually think, if they're curious about one society, uh, it would be the U.S. ahead of China. Finally, before I, uh, I turn it over to all of you, I, I want to uh, follow up with, with David a little bit uh, because I'm probably the only member of, of my family, certainly, and probably of my friends, who actually has something nice to say about Donald Trump these days. I, uh, I think that what he has perhaps accidentally uh, appears to be achieving or moving forward on the Korean Peninsula is nothing short of remarkable. Again, perhaps accidentally and incidentally, uh, I think he's, he's created an opportunity along with Kim Jong-un for movement uh, on a peninsula which has not seen a lot of movement uh, in a positive direction for a very long time. Uh, so I wonder if you could tell us a little more about sort of the political space that Trump might have within the United States to push forward a little bit uh, ties with North Korea. Where are the avenues, do you think, for sort of where he might have a bit of a leash to sort of engage with North Korea? What are the opportunities there? And what do you think might go forward in terms of the U.S. political context? And I wanted to say in this regard, I, I just thought it was one thing that I was almost uniformly overlooked, but I thought was very important that came out of the Singapore agreement was actually a program that I've observed firsthand, and that is the U.S. servicemen remains. When I went to, I've been to North Korea about seven, eight times. I worked for an NGO. And when I was in Beijing getting my visa to go to North Korea, we would often see U.S. servicemen or people working with the United States military. They were part of a program that's existed for almost two decades. Uh, it dates from the 1990s and was involved in tracking down the remains of U.S. service people from the Korean War and bringing those remains back to the United States. That program included U.S. military personnel on the territory of North Korea, U.S. military planes flying in to some of that and bringing them out. Now, this was a, a program that was stopped more recently, but it was an opportunity for cooperation. And so my gut feeling here is that this is actually the beginning of Trump's effort to focus attention upon the armistice agreement and the potential for talks around 
uh, maybe a peace treaty or something to end the Korean War. And I'm curious if you think there's political space within the U.S. to put aside the nuclear issue as much as you can and focus on that. Yeah, um, so I mean, a few things here. First of all, I'm very much in favour of these talks happening. I'm reluctant to give Trump too much moral credit for diffusing a threat of war that he was largely responsible for. Uh, but, you know, the, I think that the direction that they're moving in now is a lot better. And I would note that a lot of people who are usually uh, either sceptical to or hostile to Trump are actually in favour of this agreement. I've read very few... Uh, very few claims by people saying that this is actually a bad thing, although there are some. There are some saying, no, he's just given up too much uh, in exchange for nothing. I think that one of the reasons why he can give up so much uh, is because I think that he has quite a lot of political leeway. There is a bit of a Nixon goes to China dynamic with this. Only a Republican could conceivably do that. I mean, imagine if Barack Obama had, first of all, tried to talk directly to a North Korean leader. The merest suggestion of that sent Fox News crazy and it sent the defence establishment uh, on edge, let alone to come up with an agreement which is, you know, so weak um, on, on that side. There's just no way that, that it could happen. So I think, yeah, Trump's very uniquely placed to actually have this very direct starting point. And I do like the fact that he was prepared to talk directly to North Korea, something that no other American leader had been prepared to do because of the perception that it was legitimising North Korea. I think it was, you know, after seven decades, it's time to give up on the fiction that this was not a legitimate regime in some ways. It may be a horrible regime, but, you know, this, is, this regime is the legal person in international law that you have to talk to. Um, if you're going to achieve anything. Um, so I think that he has actually got quite a lot of room here. He's got quite a big opportunity. There are lots of different ways it could go in terms of what Kim is going to be prepared to give up. I mean, the, the servicemen's remains thing is interesting, and it is good that they've gone back to that program. I'm not sure if I believe Trump when he says that hundreds of parents of Korean War veterans who would have a minimum age of about 110 uh, were coming up to him during the campaign begging to get their son's remains back. No, apparitions, I think. Yes. <laughs> but on the other hand, the... the the restarting of that program, this is another example of where, as you say, this is something that's actually been happening for a while, even if it had been stopped recently. And if we look at the wording of this agreement, I thought it was incredible that Kim Jong-un managed to get this. All that, all that was in there about Kim Jong-un was he reaffirms his commitment to denuclearisation. Reaffirms. Right? The implication being that everything up to this point, which got North Korea to the point of threatening the US with ICBMs, was part of some commitment to denuclearising the Korean peninsula. Um, it's, you know, it's really remarkable. But if that's what it takes to actually get dialogue happening, I mean, I think that we would all agree, and even more hawkish people would agree, that there does have to be a starting point uh, somewhere we actually do have a starting point, and it's a starting point that North Korea would actually accept, which is that 
you know, it, it's direct talks. Now, I know that some of the more hawkish-minded US veterans of this conflict find it humiliating um, that, you, you know, that the US actually agreed to this thing that the US had resisted for so long. But at the end of the day, does it really hurt Americans at all? No. Does it hurt Americans that, that Kim Jong-un can go back to his people and say, ah, oh, look, you know, I brought this great power to its knees? No. I think that... Um, uh, you know, I would agree with you that it's a it's a good thing that it started. And as I say, I think that uh, Trump has quite a lot of political leeway here. And even if it is a Democrat who gets elected next, as long as this process doesn't get um, thrown completely off track, then I think it can continue. It's probably going to be a very, very long, slow road to denuclearization. But, you know, at least the car's on the road. I think I have somebody right in the back here. If you just stand up, it'd be great for us. Your name and your question, please. Hi, my name is Michelle Joyce. Um, I'm, my question's to Justin Hastings. I really enjoyed your book, Most Enterprising Economy. Um, my question is, um, so you recognize that North Korea is a bottom-up economy and, um, and economic growth is like incremental, but um, a mid-tier engagement is not really a great investment. But what can experts in transition economies um, like the World Bank Organization or the uh, Peterson Institute propose to NK in terms of like higher up international business engagement? So um, yeah, that's my question, thanks. Well, so I mean, in terms of higher up business engagement, um, I mean, part of the, one of the, so I, I should say sort of like, so I, I answered Jamie's question with the assumption that sanctions are still in place, right, which, which sort of negates a lot of Japanese and South Korean investment. Um, I, I think sort of that's, that's part of the issue. A lot of what the sanctions were designed to do was to minimize high-end business engagement with North Korea. Um, so in that sense, there's, until something changes, there's only so much you can do. Uh, the Peterson Institute in particular would probably say, um, or Marcus Nolan would say that what, what North Korea really needs is to build up its, its, in, its sort of institutions that deal with investors, right? Um, and, and so in that sense, that's the kind of thing that would, would make sort of North Korea attractive to, to high-end investors, situations where you can actually resolve disputes uh, in a sort of um, appropriate and consistent way, um, sort of infrastructure that actually delivers what they say they're going to deliver, um, sort of at least some protection against expropriation, um, or sort of ruinous taxation, uh, sort of in, in a surprise sort of situation. I mean, those are the kind of things that, that high-end, um, high-end, high-end sort of business engagement would would require, and that's the, and that kind of thing can only be delivered by by the government itself. Um, sort of, I mean, you know, and I said in my book, sort of, yes, there's a lot of this bottom-up sort of economic development and trade, but that has its limit after a while, right? Um, and um, at some point, you need to sort of develop the institutions that will. Um, allow you to, to attract the high investors. I mean, you talk about transition economies. Um, I mean, this is sort of basically what happened in many Eastern European countries, right? They, um, the shadow economy was quite large in many of these countries, and it's still larger than it is in Western Europe. Um, but the countries that did really well were the countries that managed to, to change their institutions such that they were more attractive to, to outside investors. Yes. Um, uh, my name is John Yates. I'm just an interested party in uh, North Korea. I'm a regular visitor there. I'd like to ask uh, the gentleman on the left. Uh, 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 yes. um, I get the impression from my regular visits there that there is the development of a, quite a strong middle class with a disposable income. Could, would you like to comment on that and tell me if I'm right or if my observations are incorrect? Well, I mean, it depends what you mean by, by middle class um, and, and sort of 
where you go, right? I mean, sort of what, you know, the, the few numbers we can get out of North Korea suggest that um, sort of Pyongyang especially does have a middle class who, with people who have enough disposable income to buy sort of frivolous things like coffee. Um, so, so in that sense, it's, it's growing. Um, outside of Pyongyang, sort of who knows? I mean, all the data suggests that it's a lot, the situation's a lot worse outside of Pyongyang. So I'm not sure how many middle class you would see there. You'd probably see some more along the border with China, people who sort of have made money by trading with China. Um, yeah, so there's probably a growing middle class. The numbers we have, there's, there's no way to tell how big, they actually, how big that class actually is. Um, and I think sort of one thing that we, we always want to be clear about with the middle class in North Korea is that it's, it's sort of unlikely to be like the middle classes in South Korea and Taiwan, which sort of push for liberalization and push for you know, sort of political liberalization, right? These are people who have made their, have made their money in part by being entrepreneurial and in part by, by playing, playing nice with the state, right? Uh, and in part, they owe their ability to make money to their relationship with people in the state. And so that makes them, in some sense, less of an oppositional middle class than a middle class that sort of um, benefits from the North Korean regime continuing. We'll take, uh, yes, right here, and then uh, Ramallah in the, in the back. But the gentleman right here got dressed up, put on a tie, sat in the front row. We'd be very happy to, to give you a microphone. Um, while we're waiting for that to come around, I'm just going to add one quick addition to the, probably this gentleman here would know as well. It's hard to know what to compare North Korea to. Uh, if it's comparing it to South Korea or Taiwan or other regular sort of countries, certainly the, the difference is remarkable. If you compare it to itself, however, and if you visit it over a period of years or watch it for a number of years as as Justin and certainly Richard has, the change is pretty remarkable. Taxis, uh, cell phones, the intranet, uh, the sort of the urban uh, restaurants in the cities in Pyongyang, things that were unheard of when I started to go to North Korea in 2001, uh, are now commonplace, at least in the capital. So the change has been remarkable. What Marcus Nolan and Steve Hag Seth Haggard describe as this marketization from below has been remarkable, and I think it's the slowing of that in recent six months to years, what Justin was referring to, and it's really been a, a process of both progress and then a slowing of that, which has been part of the political drivers for change, as we know generally, is often a driver for political change in developing economies. And that's my segue to your, uh, your question. Please, sir. Um, hi, I'm Charlie. work with Richard at the Lowy Institute. Um, Donald Trump has copped quite a lot of flack for undermining the alliance with South Korea. However, Moon Jae-in um, has done his bit to undermine the alliance in the sense that uh, his rhetoric on the campaign trail was fairly anti-American and since taking office he's uh, undermined the core constituencies which support the alliance. Now given Moon's background as um, an activist for inter-Korean rapprochement, do you think that uh, Moon would be seeking to weaken the alliance with America in order to advance his own ends of promoting inter-Korean uh, cooperation. Justin wants to answer that. I, I, I don't know what I know. He probably thinks he's got a parallel track growing. He's got the alliance there and he can conduct detente at the same time. I think in the way that Trump you know, Mr. Trump's been getting a lot of, um, you know, rare praise up on this podium tonight, but I think what he's done is, in some ways, he's put him at the centre of things, but he's also vacated the field in, for President Moon in some respects, and President Moon is now clear to pursue whatever policy he wants with the North, which is some form of uh, detente. Uh, and I guess it's the, that, that depends, how that goes depends on to the extent which Kim Jong-un is willing to engage with him. Um, 
you know, you're going to have to have baby steps on both sides, you know, confidence building measures. Uh, in the past, we've had lots of economic zones in Tumen, I think, in Kaesong, which have been turned off and turned on, depending on the political climate. Uh, there's no way this is going to be a straight line, whatever happens. Um, uh, Moon, I think, is term limited. He's tried to undo the term limits. He's got one five or six year, five year term. Uh, and I don't know how devastated the former President Park's party is, but you know, South Korean governments do change. Um, people are very much in favour of uh, uh, the sort of uh, rapprochement so-called with North Korea, but that can also change. Yeah, please, uh, right here and then, then in the back, right here and then right here. I wanted to ask, like, uh, why would the North Korean government trust, uh, like, the American government after what happened with Iran? The similarities between Iran deal and North Korea are similar. They were trying to arm themselves. Now they had the nuclear deal, and now they're backing out. Why would the North Koreans do something like that after they have seen this? And another thing is I wanted to ask, about like the um, economy, would it practice neoliberalism to in their country? And if they would, the capital accumulation between the rich and the poor would just increase. All right, maybe David, you want to say something about why would anybody trust America? <laughs> and yeah, um, not to mention Libya, <laughs> of course. And I think that I mean that was what caused the summit to be put off the first time. Um, after John Bolton basically proposed a Libyan solution. You may remember Muammar Gaddafi, whose life ended at the end of a bayonet. Uh, it's not a particularly appealing prospect to Kim Jong-un. Yeah, there is, a, there is a good question. So why would you trust the United States on this? Why would you trust Donald Trump, who's pulling out of international agreements or at least indicating that he wants to pull out of international agreements left, right and centre? And I think the answer is to come back to, you know, what has actually been negotiated in Singapore. What's North Korea given? A reaffirmation of its commitment to denuclearisation. I think that, um, uh, you know, it's not like... Libya actually gave up its nuclear weapons program. Iran suspended... It, it, Iran, I mean, that, that deal was much maligned, but actually Iran did decrease its nuclear capacity very significantly, and that deal did what it was designed to do. Trump pulling out of that is an absolute travesty, which is another reason why I'm not prepared to anoint him the patriot saint of denuclearisation, because as it happens, he's basically got the preliminaries to a deal that might happen in the future. He undid a very real um, deal on that. And I think that is why North Korea... I mean, I don't think North Korea was particularly likely to give, to give a, bit, a huge amount in the first place, but I think this is why North Korea's been very, very uh, tentative about this. Yes, because uh, certainly in the current environment, you cannot trust the United States. Um, so I think that any agreement that does actually get negotiated, it's going to have to involve the United States giving up a lot more than I think uh, Trump is, uh, imagines that he'll be giving up. If, if North Korea is going to give up anything kind of irreversible, they will expect the United States to do the same. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, Ram, I'm right here in the, in the back. Um, so this question is directed at David. Um, so you mentioned about uh, US domestic public opinion, people just don't really care about Korea. Um, what 
do you think are American interests to remain uh, militarily in the region? And do you think it's... So, cause, because I would think that the, the blue sky ambition of country, Asian countries in the region is a US military withdrawal completely from the region. Um, so do you think that there is now a likelihood of that happening, however long term, um, and underlying that uh, is what, what, what are American interests to remain in the region or um, would it be better if they did leave? Yeah, sure. So I wouldn't necessarily say it's likely, but it's more likely now than it would have been in the past. And I think that, yeah, for most Americans, the reasons for an American military presence in East Asia or in the Pacific, you know, they're really only vaguely or dimly understood. Um, and, you know, the whole alliance system, which Trump has just attacked so relentlessly in, in his rhetoric, I think really has convinced a lot of people that the United States has nothing to gain from being in the region. Now, historically, certainly the thinking for the United States for being in the region was, you know, we, we deal with the problems over there and we don't deal with the problems in the continental United States. It's actually, in, in, in a weird way, the American military presence in that is actually a way of maintaining sort of splendid isolation um, uh, for the United States in the continental uh, US, in, in, same as, the, uh, as troops on the other side of, of the Atlantic. The whole idea is that if you have all of these cooperative relationships, you know, Trump doesn't appreciate how much other countries were actually putting into those relationships, mainly because he saw everything purely in terms of, you know, what's the level of the military contribution. Um, so, for example, he didn't see the, the need for American bases in Germany. Those bases save a lot of American lives because it's a hell of a lot quicker to evacuate Americans from the Middle East to Germany than it is uh, all the way back to the United States. There are all these kinds of dimensions of alliance relationships that Trump just doesn't appreciate that a lot of people in the foreign policy establishment do appreciate, but that a lot of the American people don't appreciate. So, Traditionally, America has stayed very involved in that region because it doesn't really matter what the American people think. Foreign policy tends to be something that is conducted above the level of uh, electoral politics. It tends to be insulated um, from political pressure. Trump has actually put a lot of things on the table now that, uh, that didn't used to be on the table. So I would say, yeah, the, the actual prospects, are probably not for a complete American withdrawal uh, from the Asia-Pacific region, but certainly for a partial withdrawal, are actually there. Whether or not that'll happen, whether or not that'll survive when Trump is no longer president is, is anyone's guess. Richard, you spent the past uh, over a decade, I think, living in Washington after a long time in Asia, looking at U.S. involvement in, in the region. Do you want to say anything about the U.S. alliance position, maybe more long term, or how the current uh, recent developments may be unsettling that in some fashion or not? Yeah, well, I mean, the, it, it, David's right. I mean, it, the, the alliance system in Asia was so much part of the furniture in the U.S. that once Trump started attacking it, really nobody had any justification to come back with it. Um, and in some respects, Trump has a point, if you think about it. You know, what is America doing there? Why can't Asia be run by Asians? Uh, and the reason, of course, is that many Asian countries don't get on with each other 
and they want the Americans there. Uh, and that still applies uh, at the moment. The Japanese, uh, most of all, most reliant on the US uh, and totally isolated in the current diplomacy on the Korean Peninsula. Um, and of course, they want the Americans to stay. But over time, that, you know, when we had been here before, by the way, Jimmy Carter tried to withdraw troops from South Korea and the sort of US deep state so-called pushback and none, you know, made sure it didn't happen until he was finally sort of ushered out of uh, office at the election. But it's an interesting point about how long can it actually last. It creates a lot of ex existential angst in Australia, uh, in Japan and the like. And in fact, the rise of China only makes it more difficult because many countries actually want America to stay um, uh, as a balancer against China. And I'll just say finally that China over time would like the US to leave, but China doesn't want the US to leave quickly because China is in no position to play the role that the US plays in Asia now. And so if the US just disappeared tomorrow, there'd be, you know, I think foreign policy, diplomatic, military, whatever, uh, chaos. You know, China would like the US to go into some kind of bourgeois decline, you know, gradually drift across the uh, Pacific um, because anything faster than that uh, would be a problem. And of course, as we saw with the British empires, don't die overnight. You know, it takes decades. But you're right here, let's go. Right. Uh, thanks for the very insightful presentation. My first question is about um, China's foreign policy. Can China play the North Korea, play North Korean card to balance against the, um, the trading war, the ongoing trading war launched by America? And the second question is, as we can see, China has changed its policy towards North Korea. Um, what is the motivation behind it? Because of the uh, internal bureaucratic transformation or because of the ex extra strategic gain from the new policy or because of the previous policy has brought the catastrophic consequence to China? Richard, do you want to say something about the, the relationship with the trade war? And then I'll just yeah, I think the trade war relationship, China, that's bringing China-Japan closer together, not so much North Korea because they're not much of a trading partner. Uh, you know, but um, uh, as Justin said earlier, the, you know, China has great leverage and they, they could use it. The second point, what was the second question again? It was about... Uh, oh, it, well, I, I think China changed, you know, China... Uh, policy with North Korea has often been party to party uh, and I think that sort of channel is kind of calcified in many respects. Uh, most of the experts in the Chinese system once China set up relations with South Korea uh, were more and more in the foreign ministry, not in the party. Uh, and in, in a sense I think Xi Jinping, as I said earlier, is playing China back into the game to make, China, make sure China has the whip hand uh, in this current sort of uh, round of negotiations. But I think at the same time, you'll see a transformation of policy generally and put it much more firmly back into the diplomatic Chinese mainstream and not held in the party-to-party -party relationship. Justin, do you, want, do you want to say anything? And I want to just add that I think part of the, the reason I've really enjoyed reading Justin's work in recent years is there's been an attention upon sort of the ge economic geography of the relationship, looking at the actual interaction across the border and the importance of China, not just being a very large centralized country, but also the regions being very important, the northeast part of China being the most natural sort of compatriot. So the extent that you think there are ties um, that China has with North Korea beyond, say, Beijing, 
that are part of a relationship that could be restored if ties get better? Yeah, I mean, the, yeah, the ties, the ties with, um, between North Korea and China, I mean, they, they exist at sort of the, the capital-to-capital, sort of party-to-party level. But I mean, to, fundamentally, you know, the average interaction of a North Korean with a Chinese person is at the person-to-person business level, right? And specifically businesses of the, nor- the northeastern provinces. So, so in that sense, that's really sort of where a lot of the business, the, the relationship is built. Um, and, you know, I think sort of one of, the, one of the, I think one of the things we need to recognize about China's relationship with North Korea is that one of the issues is that if China enforces the sanctions against North Korea, China pays a price, right? Which is the, the businesses in the, in the border areas collapse, right? Uh, and that leads to, you know, big problems in the provinces. So it's not simply a matter of, just, you know, what is China's foreign policy? It's actually, there's actually a lot of moving parts here. Um, and, and, and sort of just to sort of um, dovetail on that as well, I mean, there has been a debate in China in recent years, sort of like the debate, you know, that, that Trump started in the U.S. is, well, what's the point of this alliance, right? I mean, like, you know, they, they talk about lips and teeth, but, but why do they have a lips and teeth relationship, right? I, I mean, you know, sort of, you know, the Korean War was a long time ago, and, and you know, it's, it's, I think a lot of Chinese scholars are starting to ask, well, what was this getting China, right? Um, what is the relationship getting China? And so that's why you can see sort of this, sort of this almost, I don't want to say bifurcated, but this Chinese reluctance to enforce sanctions because of the, the local relationships on the ground and the importance of North Korea to China's economy in that particular area. But also sort of if once they decide, they're willing to pay the price because ultimately China's getting tired of North Korea in many respects. We'll come in just one second. I'm going to add one thing, which is that I think there's a real anxiety on South Korea about this relationship as well. So the South Koreans, when you go to Seoul, they'll tell you about China's fourth northeastern province namely North Korea. So there's a level of anxiety about sort of the potential for China's economic influence in North Korea, which I think is part of the drivers for Moon's interest in engaging with North Korea economically. So there are these domestic drivers on both sides which can push towards, I think, a kind of engagement with North Korea, which we may miss from focusing solely at the capitals or on sort of the headlines in a lot of the newspapers. And I think those underlying internal drivers in all of these countries are an important part of the reasons why we've seen developments in recent months move so so rapidly, I think. Please, go ahead. Yeah, so that's a good segue um, uh, from what I'm going to ask. I'm Skadi. I'm studying Peace and Conflict Studies at Sydney University. Um, in recent times, we've read about the somewhat, I suppose, messy, murky pol- political scene in South Korea. We've had the former president, you know, indicted for corruption. We've had all sorts of, um, you know, minor incidents with chai bowls or con- big conglomerates like Korean Air you know, airlines, um, which seem to have, you know, quite substantial influence in in what happens politically and, you know, the element of corruption that's around, you know, huge organisations like that. And then we have President Moon coming on the scene who has a very different background um, or superficially seems to have a very different background to previous presidents. I'm just wondering, um, anyone on the panel... Uh, whether you think there'll be a backlash um, against President Moon for his quite positive and quite unique um, rapprochement with uh, North Korea. And I'm wondering what, how, how you perceive the, um, the South Korean population in general might feel about what he's doing. I don't think it's unique to start with. Uh, Kim Dae-jong did it. Uh, uh, with even a greater flourish, I think, than President Moon. Uh, And I don't think there'll be a backlash until it unravels, really. Um, So if it develops uh, in a reasonable fashion and Kim Jong-un doesn't sort of go back into his um, 
whatever, um, then I think uh, I think it's a very popular thing. I think many people think that this is a you know the times are changing. Um, the U.S. alliance system is changing; it can't go on forever. And so, in that respect, I I, I don't see it um, uh, um, going backwards in public opinion quickly in South Korea. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I don't think um, Moon Jae-in is, is sort of particularly unique. I mean, he was Notayu's chief of staff, right? Um, and he, he believes many of the things that Notayu believes, but I think he's, he's both constrained and sort of wiser in many respects than Kim Dae-jung and Notayu in his dealing with North Korea in the sense that unless something sort of comes out, he's unlikely to sort of deliver truckloads of cash to Kim Jong-un like, like you know, sort of Kim Dae-jung did, right? Um, you know, which is a major scandal, right? Um, He's also constrained by the fact that North Korea has nuclear weapons, right? And so he can't ignore that, right? And so there's a limit to how far he can go unless North Korea gives him something. Uh, and sort of pulling back because North Korea has nuclear weapons is not something that, you know, I think a lot of Koreans will blame him for. Um, so he's much more realistic. And I think the other advantage he has is that he's not nearly as anti-American as, as Notegu was, right? And he's, he's, he's kept his rhetoric sort of much more level, and especially relative to China and the U.S. than, than Notegu did. And that's, that's given him some leeway to act in, in ways that previous presidents haven't been able to. Uh, right Tom Corbin, U.S. Study Center. Um, just going back to what Richard sort of alluded to before and my question is about what does Japan do now? Um, given that Abe, or at least the LDP in Japan, is the only government of the former six-party talks yet to hold a substantial meeting with North Korea in recent times, but also considering that Abe has up until now used the North Korean threat as justification for constitutional change. Well, I mean, uh, you know, Japan's in a box, you know. They, they're cut out of the, uh, the, the sort of broader dialogue until recently. Uh, Xi Jinping and Abe did have their first telephone conversation in recent weeks, which was something. Um, so previously, as we saw, Abe had to rush off to a sort of excruciating 12-hour flight to sit at Trump's feet in Washington um, to try and, you know, be the last person that Trump saw before he, you know, met Kim and the like. And that was a terrible position for him because he was so shabbily treated on all manner of other issues, you know, trade, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, there's also a problem for the Japanese, his domestic politics and his Abe's obsession, that he insists to this day putting the abductees issue front and centre. Uh, I think the Bush administration was driven crazy by this. Uh, I don't blame Abe for taking up that humanitarian issue, but it becomes a roadblock in the way he manages it to all sorts of other things. The third thing, of course, he will get his meeting with Kim at some stage, but you know, the North Koreans will demand he writes them a fat check. You know, so there's gonna be a price of entry um, uh, as well uh, for Abe. So it's all very, and that's writing a fat check without probably much getting much warmth in return. So it's very difficult for the Japanese. On the constitutional issue, it kind of comes and goes in Japan. Um, uh, uh, it's true that the North Korean, even more so than the Chinese military threat, I think, has been the biggest um, driver in his favour in getting constitutional change. Uh, Abe has just come out of the back of this major scandal. I think his cabinet has really, their popularity has finally recovered uh, and the like. Maybe that means he can get back to the constitutional issue, but, uh, but I doubt it. Please, you've been patient. Thank you. Thank you very much. Abe Kodem from Department of of peace and conflict studies. Assuming that North Korea wants or willing to dismantle its nuclear power, what guarantees they would seek and from who? 
David, do you want to? You grab the microphone first. Yeah, um, I think. Yeah, I mean that's a that's a huge if. Um, I think that every step would have to involve guarantees from the United States, both for material and for symbolic reasons. Um, someone once described threats against the United States as North Korea's biggest export industry. It, I mean, the, I think that it has, you know, it has to be seen as North Korea actually asserting its will over the United States for symbolic reasons, but also for material reasons. You know, the United States is the main game militarily in that region. It's the main reason why the North wants a nuclear arsenal in the first place. I've got to admit, I don't... So I think that in terms of where the guarantees would have to come from, they'd have to come from the United States. I've got to admit, I don't know what they would actually look like. Um, uh, and I think that this is going to be a major difficulty going forward. Is it complete United States withdrawal from the Korean Peninsula? At the moment, that looks like the most modest thing that, that the North might be asking for. Is it... Uh, as the gentleman up there mentioned, complete US withdrawal from the entire region. Is he going to go really ambitious and say, you know what denuclearisation means? means you give up your nuclear uh, weapons as well. Um, even though that's a basically unthinkable uh, you know, proposition, uh, Kim Jong-un's a fairly unthinkable leader, same way, that, um, same way that Trump is. So at the moment, I mean... Uh, one of the sort of aspects of unpredictability about this is it's just really, really hard to anticipate what kind of guarantees would would be acceptable, would work. And I think that it's no surprise that so far the talks haven't got anywhere near those. I think this is this is something for the future and it's something that's going to be very difficult to nut out. I wanted to have one, one sentence before we pass on to the next question, which is... Uh, I think it's possible that North Korea does not plan to give up its nuclear weapons. I think it's very possible that for, I think, domestic political reasons as much as maybe practical security ones, uh, not only is it extremely difficult, as both Justin and David have said, for the United States to offer any kind of guarantee that North Korea could feel confident in, but North Korea, for its own reasons, may not be very willing to give up those nuclear weapons. They've said we're a nuclear weapons state. They've held six tests, the exact same number as Pakistan, which, as you may recall, uh, is, still has its nuclear weapons. I think it's very plausible that, in fact, the talk about denuclearization may remain extremely vague. And so I think some of the interesting questions we've had here tonight are in the right place, which is, if that's the case, what else is possible in that environment? And I think we've really been probing that in a very productive way. Uh, please. I'd also like to thank the panel for critical and diverse perspectives on uh, challenging relationships involving North Korea and different uh, perspectives on, on uh, of specific uh, Asian countries uh, on these negotiations. What are the possible implications of uh, these negotiations over another controversial uh, and problematic relationships between West and Russia? Are there any implications uh, and what are they? Thank you. And Russia maybe more generally, does Russia have a role to play? It looks like either maybe Abe or, or Putin may get the next visit with uh, Kim Jong-un. So is there a role for, for Russia perhaps, Richard, in this? Well, the Russian, I guess so. The Russians, when Russia recognised South Korea in 91-92, unlike the Chinese, they handled it very badly. Uh, it was done with the, uh, abruptness. Uh, this was at a time when the North Koreans really relied on uh, Soviet uh, hard currency, and of course the Soviets didn't have any hard currency, and um, 
and North Korea was left in the lurch. So I think Russia has become a much less trusted partner than China, whereas once in the Cold War days, they were pretty much on par. Uh, I don't think Putin, uh, from what I've read, really minds the rapprochement between the US and North Korea, but he doesn't want a rapprochement happening without his involvement. Uh, he's invited Kim to Vladivostok, I think. I don't know whether any date's been set for that. I think Lavrov might have been in there or going in there as well to talk to um, Kim. Um, the Russians, I think, um, Justin might know this better than me, did sort of help out in the sanctions, maybe sending a little bit of oil into North Korea when the Chinese were cutting it off, or there was some uh, suggestion of that. So I think the, I think the Russians have a, a sort of a role to play, but not a central role. Um, maybe a spoiler role, they're really good at that. Um, um, uh, I think it's much more about China and the US. Can I just add to that? But I think um, Yelena was also asking about US-Russia relations yeah, and are there, yeah, yeah, are there implications? Um, and I think there are. I think that, you know, it's, it's been very clear from the beginning that, that Trump wants closer relations with Russia and wants closer relations with Putin for a whole range of reasons. There is a bit of an ideological affinity there. Um, I think that he's, he sees Russia as a country that could... You know, the United States could basically just leave the whole ISIS problem to Russia. I think that, but whereas the basically the whole country has been prepared to go along with Trump on Kim Jong-un to some extent, we just won't see that with Russia. That is a bridge too far for a lot of Republicans. Um, it's certainly a bridge too far for a lot of Democrats. I think we'll continue to see bipartisan resistance to what Trump, to the kind of rapprochement that, that Trump um, wants with Putin. I think, as I say, North Korea hasn't really been a salient issue for the United States. People are interested in what Trump might be able to do there. I think, though, there's far more of a sense of sort of fundamental opposition of interests uh, between the US and Russia, even if that's not something that Trump sees. I think that's where we'll see the limits of his ability to act unilaterally. Well, I think we've, um, we've outlasted the rain. Uh, the weather seems to have turned a little bit more positive. So uh, before, before it returns, I want to, before I let you go, I wanted to first take this opportunity to, again to thank the China Study Center for hosting this event and for Sydney Ideas for having us here. And for all of you for coming along tonight. And most importantly, please join me in thanking our panel for a very stimulating. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.